You can be seated. And twos and three-year-olds are free to go now. And if you are hanging around in here with us this morning, if you have your Bible, would you go ahead and open up to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to be, verses 12 through 14. If you're new to the Bible, I'll give you a couple of quick tips for how to find 1 John chapter 2. Um, one, feel free to use your table of contents. And uh, if you look there, you'll find 1 John, not the 1 John, that's the Gospel of John, but you'll see 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, 1 John, uh, find the page number and turn there. Or you turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, start flipping pages to your left, and right after Revelation, you'll get Jude, and then 3 John, and 2 John, and then 1 John. So let me encourage you to have a Bible open and follow along with us as we study together today. Poetry is the literature of affection. If you want to communicate your love or your value for another person to them, well, then poetry is generally the way to go. Once upon a time in my 12th grade English class, uh, we read a sonnet by Shakespeare. And after we read that, my teacher said, guys, if any of you would like a girlfriend, I would advise you to memorize this and to quote it to a girl and see what happens. I fell into that target audience. I wanted a girlfriend. And so I committed this thing to memory, and it's been like an earworm. It's stuck with me ever since. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometimes too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometimes declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest, so long as men can breathe and eyes can see. So long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, did it work? It worked once. That's all I needed. In our passage today, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, we find a poem. It's the only poem we have that's original to John that's recorded, that we know of. The only poem that John himself created and wrote down for us. And why would he insert a random poem into the middle of this document well, his church is in major spiritual turmoil, and his poem steadies them by reminding them of all they possess in Jesus Christ. These are pastoral words, words of affection. It's not a love poem like Shakespeare's 18th sonnet. It, it's, it's, it is a poem, though, of affection and warmth and strength and encouragement to a people who have been spiritually beat up. What's the cause of their spiritual turmoil? Well, first of all, in the immediate context of this story, there's been this schism in the church. We're going to talk more in detail about that here in a couple of Sundays. Um, but we can't get away from the reality that this is the context these people are living in and that this letter was written in. There have been a group of people who have rejected Jesus Christ and his gospel, and they have left John's church and gone to do their own thing. And that schism has created emotional turmoil and spiritual turmoil in the hearts and lives of John's people. That's one cause of their turmoil. But another possible cause could just be the very nature of some of the things John is teaching about. In this letter, knowing that his people are hurting, he doesn't come to them and just say, it's going to be okay, you're nice, puppy dogs are fluffy, rainbows are pretty, we're going to make it. What he does is he really roots down into some spiritual material with them. And so he's spoken to them about the dangers of sin and the dangers of fraudulent faith. In the passage just before this one, the one that Pastor Steve preached last week, he warns them about the danger of hating brothers and sisters. In the passage after this one, the one we'll study next week, he warns them of the dangers of loving the world. So there's a weight 
to John's instruction. And so in a context of emotional hurt from the schism and perhaps a little more spiritual stinging from the weight of John's teaching, he gives them this poem to affirm to them that he loves them, that the Lord loves them, and he reminds them of all that they have by their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this poem might find you in a similar context. Spiritual and emotional turmoil come from many different situations. Personal crisis can leave us wondering if God is really for us. Like the psalmist in Psalm 13, we might ask, have you forgotten me, God? What's more, sin and other failures in our lives may leave us doubting our very salvation. And so amidst the spiritual and emotional turmoil of our lives, we all need to be reminded that we are safe in Christ, that we are loved by Christ. We need to be reminded that God does not define us by the worst of our failures or fears. We need to be reminded that we have victory and strength in Jesus Christ. We need our thoughts reset from fear to confidence, our sight shifted from chaos to the throne. John's poem is the reminder we need and it anchors us in the truth of what we possess in Christ. So my goal today is to put strength in your legs, some iron in your bellies, by reminding you of what you have by faith in Jesus Christ. This poem gives us three spiritual anchors to steady us in times of turmoil. So I want you to follow along with me as I read 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you and you have conquered the evil one. So there's our poem. And before we dive into it, talk about these spiritual anchors, I want to point out a few features that may help you see this poem a bit better. And so I've tried to consolidate it. We'll put it on the screen here for you. Uh, John addresses three different groups in this poem. Did you see that? There's this repetition in the poem. He addresses first children, and next he addresses fathers, and then he addresses young men. He does that twice in a row. Children, fathers, young men. Children, fathers, young men, just like that. Now, here's the question that often comes up with this passage. Who is John speaking to? Who are the children, fathers, and young men in question here? I'm not making this up. I looked at five different sources on this. Every one of them had a different answer. <laughs> and they all said it with confidence. This is why it is the way it is. That tells me we, we've just got a lot of guesses we don't really know for sure. Some people would say, well, he's speaking to uh, people at three different age groups, children, fathers, young men. Some would say, no, this isn't about birthdays. This is about spiritual maturity, those who are infants in the faith, those who are younger in the faith, those who are a little older in the faith, more mature. Um, some would say, no, this is, this is directed to leadership. So children would refer to the whole church, and then uh, fathers and young men would be elders in the church. That's who he's referring to there. You've got a lot of different options. You can flip a coin and pick the one that works best for you, and, and doing so isn't going to undermine the power of God's Word. Here's my opinion, which is not worth a whole lot on this. I think when John references children... He's speaking to the whole church because he uses this phrase to describe the whole church multiple times in this letter. Anytime he says children, he's not talking about the babies. He's talking about us, God's people. And so then when he speaks to fathers and young men, what I think is that he's speaking to people uh, of different ages within the church. The gender, not important in this matter because everything he says in this poem, the things that he speaks says that believers possess is true of all believers, male and female alike. These things are not uh, restricted just to the men, and these things are restricted to young men, but then older men have access to these things. What he says here is true for every believer in Jesus Christ. So children, he's speaking to the whole church. 
fathers, he's speaking to those who have a few miles on the odometer. Young men, he's speaking to those who are perhaps newer in the faith, younger, at least in their walk with Jesus Christ. That's a guess. Your guess is going to be better than mine, and that's okay. The main thing is if we get lost trying to make sense of who the children, the fathers, and the young men are, then we're going to miss the whole point of this poem altogether. It's not worth a long discussion on those things. Now, each time he addresses these three groups, he highlights a spiritual reality that is theirs in Christ. I gave it to you in shorthand on this screen. So, children, your sins have been forgiven. Right? And then he says, fathers, you've come to know uh, the one who's from the beginning. Young men, you've conquered the evil one. Children, you've come to know the father. Fathers, you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. And then, young men, you've conquered the evil one. And there's some repetition here in what he says. And so his lines to the fathers, it's the exact same line both times. And then the second time he addresses children in verse 14, he uses that same type of language. It's language of knowing God, knowing the Father. So we have that repetition in those three lines. And then his words to young men both reflect each other. You've conquered the evil one. says that twice, but in the last line of verse 14, he adds a couple of different details in there. He says, you're strong, and God's word abides in you or remains in you, and you've conquered the evil one. So when you lump together the repetitions, what we come out with are three unique statements in John's poem, three anchors that steady us and give us strength in the midst of emotional, spiritual turmoil. And that's where our focus is going to be this morning. So what are these anchors? What are these statements of spiritual fact that John gives us to strengthen our hearts? Well, the first one is this. The statement is, my sins are forgiven by Christ. So I'm writing these in first person as if you are reminding yourself of these things. You're applying these truths to your heart in a time of difficulty. My sins are forgiven by Christ. This comes from the opening line, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now, I'm convinced that one of John's primary goals in this letter is assuring his Christian readers of the reality, the truth, the confidence of their salvation by faith in Christ. This letter is not intended to create doubts in readers, but certainty about our place with Jesus. And so I, I've got this theory, and it's not just me from reading and studying others, that in the places where John's language is most alarming or where the warnings are the heaviest, I think those are places where John isn't speaking primarily to the church, but he's speaking about those who have left the church, those who have abandoned faith in Christ and have gone off to do their own thing. And so take, for example, chapter 2, verse 4. We looked at that verse just a couple of weeks ago. It's a verse that can cause a lot of anxiety if we read it out of context. It says this, The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. And so what I'm saying is I think it's entirely possible that when John says this, he isn't pointing at the church, but rather he's pointing at those who have left. They say they have the truth. But the truth is not in them. Now, does it apply to the church on the whole? Well, of course it does. But in the context in which this is written, I think those who have left loom large on the minds and hearts of John and his audience. And so John's task in this letter is not just to debunk the fraudulent faith of those who have left, but it's also to reassure those who have true faith in Jesus Christ, those who have remained, those who stay in the gospel. And so here he says, little children, uh, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. There's this exclusionary statement here. Your sins are forgiven. Those who have left, those who have abandoned Christ, they never had forgiveness. They never trusted in him. And so John is reassuring his people. Although there are different messages, and although relationships have been broken here, you still have forgiveness of your sins because you trust in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Now, John says you've been forgiven on account of the name of Christ. That's shorthand for the gospel. God forgives our, sin, our sins because Jesus Christ is the one he sent to be our advocate and our atoning sacrifice. He died in our place for our sin and rose again three days later. So the question then is, okay, which of our sins did Jesus forgive? Your sins are forgiven. Okay, which sins? Most sins or all of my sin? Well, certainly the Bible reassures us the answer is Christ's death forgives us of all of our sins. Okay, what about, is that just all of my sin from here in my past? No, when Christ forgives us of all sin, it's sin, past, present, future. You've made mistakes, you will make mistakes, you will sin again. There's still sunshine in the sky, we've got sin ahead of us. And even that sin is already forgiven by Jesus Christ. You are completely and totally forgiven. Now the evil one's an accuser. And he will remind you over and over again of your sins and failures. He will plant seeds of doubt intended to harm your trust in Christ. But you, my sister, you are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. And you, my brother, you remember, you are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. And knowing that you are forgiven doesn't then give us license to sin and do whatever we want. Rather, the forgiveness that we possess by faith in Christ fuels our confession and our ongoing repentance so that when we do sin, we don't run and hide from God, but rather we come before Him boldly to the throne of grace. We've already been given this forgiveness. God, I confess to you again Help me in my repentance. And he moves us forward in our sanctification. So knowing that you are forgiven should lead you to still battle against sin and to embrace the mercy of Jesus Christ. What if you're not a follower of Jesus? This verse is very clear that apart from the name of Christ, we do not have forgiveness. Our good Actions and our good intentions do not merit God's forgiveness. Our only avenue to forgiveness for our sin against God is to put our trust in Jesus Christ who died for our sin. Your sin has separated you from God, but God loves you so much. He sent his one and only son to die in your place for your sin. There's no one else who could do this. Jesus is the only one because he is God in the flesh. He is God with flesh on. He is the one and only perfect sacrifice for your sins. And so he laid down his life for you. That's what we're going to celebrate here in the Lord's Supper at the end of our service. That he laid down his life willingly. Gave it. And when he did that at the cross, he took all of the punishment and wrath from God that your sin deserves and requires. He took all of it. And if he were still dead... It would be pointless for us to be here. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And that means every promise he's made is true. That means he really is who he says he is. And because he loves you, he promises that if you will put your trust in him, your faith in him, he'll forgive you. He'll make you new. He'll give you eternal life. And this is the day that that can happen. I hope that before you leave this building, if you've got questions about faith, about what it is to be a follower of Jesus, grab me, grab someone you know here. Let's have that conversation sooner rather than later because you're loved and you are precious and forgiveness awaits you in the name of Jesus Christ. Second spiritual truth that anchors us in turmoil. The first one was my sins are forgiven. The second one is this, I know God. Again, another first person statement, I know God. This is such a simple but profound statement and John repeats this line three different times in this poem. In verse 13, fathers, you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. Verse 14, children, you've come to know the father. And then again, fathers, you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. Three different times he repeats this. It's as if he's communicating with us. And he wants us to get this thing in us for us to understand what it means that we know the one who is from the beginning and we know the Father. So who's the one who's from the beginning? 
Well, that line is a reference to Jesus, who according to John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. Also, at the beginning of this book, 1 John, he speaks of Jesus with similar language, being the one who is from the beginning. And so when John says that to fathers both times, you know the one who's from the beginning, he's telling us, the church, you know Jesus Christ. And then he tells children, the congregation, you've come to know the Father. So he's telling us here, you know the Son of God, the infinite Word who took on flesh, and you know God the Father. What difference does it make if you know God? How does that help day to day? What does that do for you in practical terms? Well, here's what it does for the Christian. It gives you supernatural peace and rest. How so? I want you to consider what Jesus said about what it means to know God. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus said this, No one knows the Son but the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal Him. So if you know God, it's not because you've been on some pilgrimage and you've uncovered Him under a rock or on a high mountain or in a sacred cave somewhere. It's because Jesus has revealed Him to you. That's how anyone knows God, is at the first move of Jesus Christ to open our eyes. And so Jesus says, those who I've revealed Him to, those are the ones who know Him, what do we do with that knowledge? Listen to the very next words that come out of Jesus' mouth. He says this, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We find the same idea at play in Psalm 46.10. The speaker is surrounded by fighting and war, and God says, be still and know that I am God. To know God is to possess supernatural peace and rest in Him. If you know God, then you know all of His strength, all of His knowledge, and all of His love belong to you. It doesn't make sense then to be frantic or panicked or fearful. You know God. I read this fascinating article uh, a while back written by a man named Brian Shule, who used to fly the SR-71 Blackbird, the fastest plane to ever exist on this planet. The article is just incredible as he describes what his experiences were like. In the lifespan of that plane, not a single one was ever shot down because it flew faster than the rockets that were shot at it. Just mind-boggling. And so he described this one day when they were flying a training mission uh, over Arizona, and he and his co-pilot, Walter, were listening to local air traffic radio below them. They were way high, way fast. They heard a pilot of a small airplane ask for a ground speed check. How fast am I going according to uh, the ground speed? And the air traffic controller told him, you're going about 100 miles an hour. He said knots, but I'm translating to miles per hour. You're flying about 100 miles an hour. Uh, and then they heard an F-18 pilot chime in. They were surprised. And this guy also asked for a ground speed check. He didn't need it. He was just trying to flex his muscles on all the mere mortal pilots underneath him. And the air traffic controller said, uh, sir, you're going about 700 miles an hour. And Brian said uh, his co-pilot, Walter, didn't miss a beat. He heard Walter's mic flip on. And Walter said, <laughs> asked the air traffic control, could we please get a ground speed check? And the air traffic controller said, yes, uh, you are going 2,200 miles an hour. <laughs> and they didn't hear anything else from the F-18 pilot the rest of the day. <laughs> Look, it, if you knew that the SR-71 was your plane, you would fly with calm and confidence, knowing that you are protected by the speed of the plane. If you, know, if you know God, what do you have to fear? What an incredible anchor is our knowledge of God. You know Him because He revealed Himself to you, and so now you can rest in Him. We have these anchors. We've been forgiven. We know God. And the third truth that anchors us in our turmoil is this, 
I have victory over the evil one. I have victory over the evil one. So both of Paul's, or excuse me, John's statements uh, to the young men in this poem, they, they reflect each other. Now he tells them they have conquered the evil one. He uses the phrase the evil one a total of five times in this letter, and every time it's a reference to Satan. And so John says that people of faith have conquered Satan. They've conquered the evil one. How is this so? Well, John helps us understand what he means by that a little later in his letter. In chapter 5, verse 4, John says, everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. And this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. So when John speaks of the world there in chapter 5, he's referencing Satan in the realm in which he operates. And what is it that conquers Satan? It's our faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on from there in chapter 5, verse 18, and he says that believers are protected by God and evil does not touch them. So John understands believers' victory over the evil one to be achieved by our faith in Jesus Christ, by which God abides in us and we are protected by Jesus. Jesus is both your deliverer and your protector. And I want you to consider all of the facets of Satan's defeat. He was defeated when Jesus was crucified and rose again. He's further defeated when you hear the gospel, Jesus reveals the Father to you, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and there you're delivered from darkness to light. Satan continues to be defeated as Jesus protects us in our daily lives, and he will ultimately be defeated once and for all when Christ puts him down at the end of all these things. And that's why we can agree with John, who said in verse 14 that we are strong. Now, we aren't strong in the sense that we have big muscles and power of our own. We are strong because Jesus is the omnipotent one. He is our advocate and our atoning sacrifice. God doesn't give you the muscles. Jesus has all of those muscles, all of that strength. Now, knowing that, we have to be humble here. Although Satan is defeated, he's still dangerous. He still accuses us. He still deceives us. He's still seeking to devour. And so we must be vigilant in our victory. But how? How do we renew our strength and hold our position of victory? Well, John tells us at the end of verse 14, God's word remains in you. Your Bible might say God's word abides in you. If that's true, if my strength is renewed, if my victory is held by my place in the word of God, then how essential is it that you and I eat this book on a daily basis? One of my favorite writers, uh, a man named Don Whitney, spoke to the importance of getting the Bible in us. And he, he said this, he said, regardless of how busy we become with all things Christian, we must remember that the most transforming practice available to us is the disciplined intake of Scripture. The most, I agree with him, the most transforming practice available to us is the intake of Scripture. It is the basis from which all other spiritual disciplines exist. Worship doesn't have that potency. Prayer doesn't have that potency because the Word of God is the foundation for all of those things. The Word of God fuels our praying. It informs our, report, our repentance. It gives words to our worship. It teaches us to love our neighbor. It teaches us to, to forgive those who have hurt us. It shows us the love of God. It protects us from evil. The Word of God abides in us as much as we get it in us. Now, many things can abide in us. Self-hatred, lust, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness. But those things are like squatters in a home that does not belong to them. Let the Word of God live in you to give you strength in your continued victory over the evil one. So what has John given us today in this little poem? He's given us anchors. These powerful spiritual anchors, these statements of truth to hold us firm in the midst of every difficulty we face. Those anchors are these. I am forgiven. I know God. 
I have victory over the evil one. So I wonder if maybe you come in here today wind-tossed, battered by trials of many kinds. It, it might look like any number of situations. It could be messy relationships in your life, perhaps a hurting marriage. It could look like sin that you've given yourself to. It might look like fatigue from your own personal crisis. So Christian, if you've been tempted to believe that this bad thing happened because God is against you, well, John gives you an anchor I am forgiven. Then if you're forgiven, then God is for you. His blessings are yours. His deliverance is yours. Christian, have you been so consumed with the uncertainty of your situation that you're living a panicked nightmare? Well, John gives you this anchor. I know God. And if I know God, then I know His rest and I know His peace. Christian, have you felt that evil has the upper hand in your life? John gives you an anchor. I have victory over the evil one. The key here is not just to repeat these phrases in a mirror as if they are quaint daily affirmations, but rather you download these into your life by letting the Word of God dwell in you. So what's one practical thing you can do in the week ahead to put these truths in place in your life. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Here's your homework for the week. I want you to take one additional step to improve your Bible intake. I want you to get the Bible in you in the week ahead. So if you're not a reader at all, and that's true of some people, then here's how you meet this challenge. You find access to an audio version of the Bible. And every day this week, you listen to the Bible. You get, I'm not saying listen to more worship, and that's fine if you do that. I'm not saying listen to more preaching. I don't know why you do that to yourself. What I'm saying is you get the Bible in you. You read it. So if you're not a reader, then you listen to it. There are multiple apps that provide this service for you, and you can do this for no charge at all. If you are a reader, but you're just not reading your Bible, then I want to challenge you to set a goal to read your Bible every day in this next week. Maybe choose one of the Gospels and you start there. And how much do you read each day? That's between you and Jesus. Maybe you read a chapter. Maybe you read five chapters. It's up to you. The thing is, every day, I want the Word of God to dwell in me. Maybe you're already a Bible reader. How could you challenge yourself? Maybe you challenge yourself with Scripture memorization. Maybe there's a couple of verses that you really, you root down in this week and, and you have someone hold you accountable and test you in it so that you really memorize them. Or maybe, rather than just a verse here or there, maybe you commit to learn a longer piece of scripture, a psalm, or the Beatitudes, something like that. But the, the goal is to let the Word of God abide in us and in doing so, we put on our strength. And so read your Bible. And perhaps this week as you're reading, you might come to Revelation chapter 12. And when you're there, you'll read John's description of this incredible battle set in the future in which Satan is defeated. And the scene after Satan's defeat is described this way by John. He says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before God day and night, has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. What was their testimony? Well, maybe it sounded something like this. I'm forgiven. I know God, and Christ's victory is my victory. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you for your great love to us. And we need poems like this to remind us of that love and to remind us of all that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I, I pray for your children, my brothers and sisters, that we would live in the reality of the things that are ours by faith in Christ. That we would have eyes that see you in the midst of every difficulty and hardship. And I know there are many represented in this room. Lord God, you know every one of them. 
Holy Spirit, minister to our aching souls by your gracious word today. In the week ahead, as we dwell in the word so that the word would dwell in us, feed us, nourish us, strengthen us, let your word and your promises strengthen us in the days ahead. God, I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. Let this be the day that new life is theirs through faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope we have in him. Thank you for receiving everyone who comes to you by faith. No matter the background, no matter the mistakes, God, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, Today, we're going to respond to the Word of God by taking the Lord's Supper together. If by some chance you slipped in and you've not yet received your elements, they're at these tables outside the doors. I would encourage you now to go ahead and go pick those up. Uh, Here at South Shore Baptist Church, we welcome all followers of Jesus Christ to eat and drink with us because this cup and this bread represent something that is already spiritual true. These are not doors to spiritual truth in, in the sense that these, these do not save us. What saves us is our faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. So when we eat, we remember what we possess. What we eat, we're remembering this anchor that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we welcome all who are followers of Jesus Christ to eat and drink with us today. And uh, we're going to bookend our Lord's Supper with some songs of praise. And so brothers and sisters, let's sing and remember together.
take the Lord's Supper. Let's take a moment together, just in quiet, silent prayer, to reflect on the cross, to speak words of love and adoration to the one who gave his life for us. Would you take a few moments on your own here in prayer? Father, we pray all this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, would you go ahead and pull your mask down and then take the cup and make sure the bread end is up. There's this large flap on the side. Go ahead and open that up and remove the bread, please. need a hand you can ask a member of your family to help you out all right hear the word of the Lord from 1st Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23 Paul writes this for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed the Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Would you replace your mask, please? And we're going to take another moment in silent prayer before we drink the cup. And so you have seconds here to again voice your heart, your adoration, your trust to the Lord. Father, thank you for hearing our prayer that we give you in the name of Jesus Christ, our advocate and atoning sacrifice. Amen. Okay, would you remove your mask again, please? And then would you carefully open your container? Again, another large flap on top. Open it all the way. Paul continues, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, in the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together.
Father, for body and blood given for us, the gift of your Son, perfectly holy, creator of all things, the one who is from the beginning, who laid down his life for us, we give you praise. We adore you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can put your masks back on. And we have remembered well together, and now we're going to praise God together. And so will you stand with me, and let's praise our God who has given us hope in Jesus Christ. by several truths today. First, Cody's a poet and I did not know it. Um, second, my sins have been forgiven by Christ and that we know God and that we have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. That is good news.
Well, if you have signed up for the membership class, just want to remind you it's in the fellowship hall after the second service. I want to encourage you um, with this word from Romans 8 as we are dismissed. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because you were you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You are dismissed.